I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Sophie K. Rosa, a writer and journalist. She has written for many publications, including Novera Media, The Independent, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Vice, Al Jazeera, Eon, and CNN. Radical Intimacy is published by Pluto Press. Sophie, i like to begin by focusing on the provocation of your book title, Radical Intimacy. You wrote that the project began during the start of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, before the lockdowns and state of emergencies, what were your thoughts on intimacy? You gestured to how social distancing impacted our collective notions of intimacy. What changed during the writing of the book, if at all? Mm, um, what's changed in relation to my notions of intimacy? Or Yeah, or when you conceive of the book project before it became what it is today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think often, especially since the book opens with consideration of the pandemic and intimacy, um, people understandably assume that I like conceived of the book kind of as a result of the pandemic or something. But actually, the book was more the culmination of kind of like, in a way, 10 years of thinking, even though I wasn't um, planning on making it into a book. And then the pandemic had just kind of distilled, you know, everything and, and put our intimate lives under the spotlight and capitalism under the spotlight. And I actually pitched the book just before the pandemic um, and then ended up writing it during the pandemic. And yeah, that did shed a different light on everything. Um, but more than anything, as we all experienced it, it mainly quantified our already existing experiences of everything and also allowed us to sit with and and focus on potentially you know our internal lives or our private lives our personal lives our intimate lives in ways that we may not have done before the project is about 10 years in the making you said i mean i've been saying that in some of the talks Uh, it's more of a retrospective view of it like it definitely wasn't 10 years of planning in any way um but yeah, yeah. I say it because in my early 20s I mm-hmm. did a master's and my thesis project was about uh neoliberalism and romantic love and that was a topic that I was super interested in at that time and I, I still am but yeah kind of really focused on in my early 20s and kind of as a area of study mm-hmm. um and so then intervening years yeah, it's yeah. not as if I was just planning this book for right, right. all, but I suppose it was this mm-hmm. undercurrent of everything I was doing. I like always kind of went back to thinking about the intimate sphere. So yeah, in a way, now I'm seeing it as like the natural culmination of something. But yeah, that's mm-hmm. a that's a retroactive framing. <laughs> Maybe this relates more to the final question that I have for you. But I wanted to know if you think the word intimacy is it synonymous to friendship, or is it is there something different between the two kind of understandings of the word because I know in the book anyone who's read the book will know that you do focus on friendships and relationships but what makes intimacy more radical than a friendship or 
a relationship or if at all? Hmm. Yeah. Now I think of it, I haven't ever looked up the etymology of intimacy, but I've been asked a few questions around this and like, what's the difference between intimacy and love, intimacy and friendship. Mm-hmm. And I think just on the one hand, uh, words are how we understand them and it's very mm-hmm. subjective. So I definitely don't think that there there is a, a singular answer um, mm-hmm. to that in terms of intimacy and friendship. But in the book, I conceive of intimacy as like, on the one hand, like the intimate sphere. So um, mm-hmm. our home lives, our family lives, our romantic yeah. lives, our um, friendships and our relationships with ourselves and our relationships mm-hmm. to death. So things that are like, hopefully in some way, you know, beyond work or more focused on the private sphere and also the intimate in terms of something that is very personal to every individual but how we connect with other people and ourselves so yeah maybe something really difficult to pin down and define much like love and I would say it it has a broader valence than friendship and that friendship can be intimate but also people could understand relationships as friendships that may not be particularly intimate in different ways I suppose in fact that is related somewhat to to different parts of the book uh, where I consider how in our lives as as commonly lived under capitalism in the culture and society that that I live in, for instance, it's friendship often gets devalued uh, in a certain life script to the point where, you know, that relationship is not particularly intimate. Obviously, that's for everyone to judge for themselves what what feels intimate. But, you know, it's quite common for friendships to become demoted when people escalate Mm -hmm. romantic partnerships such that, you know, a certain level of closeness, vulnerability, honesty and kind of commitment in, in friendship is often neglected. I love the connection between intimacies in domestic spheres or public spheres and private spheres because the way that you use your case studies really kind of exemplify the the world that we kind of inhabit. So that includes kind of analyzing social media that becomes part of a discourse in the book that you explore. And I did want to ask you about the case stories that you used to tell about uh, the possibility to reject capitalism and neoliberalism for what you call political radicalism. So you reference the Free Britney movement, climate justice, social movements led by Black Lives Matter. And and then there was a strong kind of abolition or an alternative call to the traditional nuclear family unit. And this is on top of the many political scandals that you also wove throughout. I wanted to ask you how you chose like this kind of wide range plethora of the case studies. And did you find any similarities across these events? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, funny hearing Free Britney movement listed alongside climate justice. Um, yeah, not uh, comparable movements in in important ways. However, yeah, maybe that does, uh, I suppose, exemplify that in terms of, I suppose, case studies that I included, it was quite an organic process. Obviously, there are, there are some movements that absolutely had to be in the book. Obviously, the climate movement um, and the climate crisis, you know, had to feature in the book because it's an absolutely defining feature of 
of our lives and in the current moment. Whereas I suppose, yeah, case studies that are much more niche and not kind of defining on a societal level, such as the Free Britney movement, uh, such as Matt Hancock's affair, which is in another chapter. Mm -hmm. That was, I suppose, yeah, something organic and something that, you know, I wanted to make the book an enjoyable read. I wanted it to include current affairs and pop culture such that, yeah, it felt like really present and hopefully was a bit more fun to read, I suppose, in a certain way. Um, and how those case studies occurred to, to me to focus on, I would say was was quite random. I would just be thinking about um, the topic for the chapter and each chapter I wanted to focus, I wanted to open it with something maybe unusual or surprising and often for me those those are kind of kind of awful current affair stories like Matt Hancock affair or or you know seemingly frivolous but also like quite meaningful news stories not at all frivolous to to Britney Spears herself like the Britney Spears movement like the Britney movement I wanted to keep it interesting in that way and I suppose they just kind of occurred to me and then in terms of the more granular details of the chapters I included things that came up in the research that felt important to include it was a funny process in that you know I'm used to writing more comprehensive uh say like articles or something and it's really important you don't leave too much out in certain kinds of writing whereas in this you're inevitably going to just scratch the surface of everything you could write about mm -hmm. um, which is in part why the scope is mostly kept to like the UK which was mm -hmm. something that was agreed with the editor ahead of time, just because, I mean, that you need to make it manageable and scope in some way. So, uh -huh. you know, whilst I wasn't strict about that, um, that was the kind of main scope. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that you use the word niche. Maybe what you're saying is like a gesture to looking at, I'm not sure if local was the apt word, but like an international kind of discourse versus like a very more local based context. So you were saying, um, because you're based in England, specifically London, yeah, um, that you you were able to weave these kind of discourses together. Is that my understanding? Yeah, I suppose like a lot of uh, the theory side of things and the looking at the systems and structures that we we live in, you know, in many cases, unfortunately, though those are global, such as capitalism, mm -hmm. and yeah, the climate crisis, white supremacy, everything is yeah, all yeah. these, mm -hmm. you know, awful systemic and forms of violence are you know relevant the world over in different ways. But in terms of the kind of more, yeah, as I said, like the kind of more granular, you know, what could resistance look like? What could liberation look like? in relation to the intimate sphere, like there needed to be a geographical kind of delimitation around that, um, you know, I suppose, lest it be a, a really, really, really long book, because at certain points it was important to look at government policy, what, what kinds of government policy are controlling or coercing people in terms of their intimate lives. So it needed to have that scope. But, you know, nevertheless, like a lot of the theory that the book draws upon, such as family abolitionist theory, it, you know, is very relevant the world over. 
I'm glad we're talking about these things because I, I know you briefly mentioned the kind of research that you undertook and then the, the use of theory. Maybe as a very experienced journalist and now writer, I wonder how you're able to weave the social theories and anti-colonial scholars to flesh out your analysis, especially now that we're talking about your case studies, whether those are global, international, or even just local. Um, I'm thinking specifically about chapter two. You title it Us Against the World. You cite Dr. Kim Talbert to interrogate what she calls compulsory settler sexuality and family. Um, those who follow Dr. Talbert's work knows that she writes and speaks often of decolonizing love and you in the book draw attention to the words that she often uses, which are kinship, relationality, making with humans and non-humans. Uh, were your readers for the book a mix of peers and scholars? When I ask this question, I don't want to make a binary between academic and non-academic, but I was just really curious to know how you collected the references and sources. Mm. The references and sources, I suppose, like, like the case studies, it was um, a pretty organic process. I kind of followed my nose in the literature of what I was interested in because that's yeah how I tend to maybe you know, do my best work, follow what, yeah. what's interesting to me. And, you know, some of that was via other people's work that I found so inspirational. Like I would say some of the foundational reading in a way, well, obviously it, it went much further back, but in recent years, some of the most important yeah. um, reading I've done is in Sophie Lewis's work is among that, the mm-hmm. author of Full Surrogacy Now. That was um, their first book. And a lot of the the references in there, you know, led me to new places. I think the beauty of reading certain texts, but they lead you down different different roads and kind of following my nose on the internet as well some of the themes that the book looks at or the the intimate kind of sphere is is quite like niche and sometimes the corners of the internet on kind of anarchist websites and old blogs and stuff actually yeah. have some amazing resources mm-hmm. for radical thinking in this sphere I'm thinking a lot about um the kind of idea of the ivory tower a lot of people invoke it but I actually don't see that I think the ivory tower in, in the academic structures of course they do exist but when I think about people's kind of dismissal of academic jargon I feel like um, the words like relationality and uh, racial capitalism it's kind of part of the everyday quotidian conversation now so I only ask that question because your book is published by Pluto Press and I guess we consider that a uh, a trade press, yeah. And I, I'm just really refreshing to read that kind of the use of your um, kind of like very immediate discourse that we find ourselves in, willingly participants of the discourse, and also your analytical tools using academic works. I found that really refreshing to read because I, I feel like people do make these kind of binaries, and I don't think we can just like dismiss them because I, I found like everyone's participating in these kind of analytical language skills anyway. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I remember like when I was first commissioned to write the book, I, I remember feeling quite nervous because I'm not in academia. I haven't been uh, a student at a university for 10 years. And 
I had this feeling that like a lot of my fellow authors at Pluto were academics and it turns out that's not that's not so much the case but I had I had a certain idea and I was quite intimidated that maybe my work wouldn't be able to compete on some intellectual basis or something um yeah. and was particularly nervous about speaking about the book because you know the, the idea of the expert and I, I was like well I'm definitely not an expert I'm a journalist and I you know mm-hmm. I'm writing about something I'm interested in and I've been thinking about a long time but it's not it's not the same as having done a PhD on a topic I spoke to my original editor about those worries and then I learned a lot about publishing through the process yeah. and like you know they wanted a general readership book and yeah. I I do think it is a a book that at least it is intended to be pretty accessible mm-hmm. it's not intended to kind of jump in at the deep end with any of the stuff it looks at mm-hmm. and at the same time as you say that doesn't mean that it has to shy away from theory and yeah. away from um certain languages as long as it's sufficiently explained. And so I hope the book does that. I'm sure it also could have done it better in places. But yeah, I did try to mix up kind of different kinds of writing or something. Yeah. Uh Well, I'm remembering our early email exchange when I reached out to you to ask if you were interested in being interviewed for the podcast. I think you said something like it, it was an easy read. And when I when I finally got the book, because it took a while to get to Germany, but I thought it's it's quite dense, but I mean that in the best way possible because the reading requires some work and some patience. And it was still very pleasurable to read. So I only mentioned that smiling because um, that was how you, how you described the book was really funny. Mm-hmm. But, but not like surprise well, funny. But yeah. It's like not yeah, yeah. a big book. And it's, you know, I suppose it's like a, it's an introduction. And that was the idea was that it could be an introduction on any of these things, but also yeah. it could take more experienced readers mm-hmm. like deeper into those topics as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for readers who haven't looked at the book, Sophie does also include a bibliography of references. So that's for us to think about how to think about what's the idea of a citation and also the work that we have to do to to engage with the work that you reference in addition to the text that you wanted to present to the reader. Yeah. Cause I don't think the text is ever really complete. It's like a starting point for multiple projects to go come through. That's how I read. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, I want to get back to Dr. Talbert's work. Maybe we can just talk about how you found Kim Talbert's work. First of all, yeah. Huge shout out to Kim Talbert's work. I think it's amazing. She writes beautifully and elucidatingly about settler sexuality. It was definitely the first work that I had read that went into detail about Indigenous modes of relating and of doing kinship in specific contexts, of course. How did I come across Kim Talbert's work? Um, Potentially, I came across her work via a blog the critical polyamorous or something like that and yeah found her thinking really helpful and unique um I I found her to be like as far as I could come across on my research like a pretty unique voice I think that's how I originally came across um her work then I followed her on social media and Mm -hmm. I interviewed her for a piece that I wrote mm-hmm. at one point. And since I've seen that she's been in dialogue with 
Casey Lewis, who I mentioned earlier. So kind of all become like the thinking has like become connected. And yeah, she's she's been very supportive of the book. Actually, she's going to teach it on her course, which is yeah. I was going to ask, was she a reader of your book? I felt like I saw a blurb, or maybe I just saw it on her social media. I can't yeah, remember. She really kindly gave a endorsement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I remember um when I was in Montreal, she gave a couple of talks in Montreal, and I think maybe the blog piece that you reference I had read because I think she also did um, one of her I'm not sure if a research program is proper term for it she also had this thing called TP confessions do you remember this so it was part of her kind of her, her way of narrating stories using the colonial theories and also a way to think past the settler colonial relationships of what relationships of all sorts can be so when you when you brought up the blog post i don't remember if dr talber still maintains the blog but i felt like the last thing i read from her was maybe a couple of years ago i don't know i think she has a different blog now yeah you oh. with the critical polyamorist and now it's called okay yeah i i know one of one of dr talber's um one thing that really struck me when i attend her talks whether that's online or not is it's her kind of way of thinking about doing academic work. I think something that she said that I found really powerful, I see this in your book as well, is that she doesn't, she doesn't feel the need to always do that, the traditional academic work, like papers, and she finds herself um, doing a lot of work in community building, whether that's through her, um, her science projects or on podcasts. So I think it's been really interesting to hear you talk about this kind of convergence of multiple discourses mm. that don't need to be separated, but there's a way to fruitfully engage in all the discourses. Yeah. Actually, I was curious to know, how has the reception been for your book in terms of public spaces and even academic spaces? I'm really curious about that because I know you've been doing the, the promotional ends and rounds for it. Yeah, so I was, I was pretty nervous about it coming out. Uh, Mainly just because the online space can be so hostile and unhealthy and unkind. And yeah, I was just nervous about being able to deal with like anything challenging that came up with the reception, I suppose. And I, I did kind of take some measures because to kind of safeguard my mental health during that time. I did some things on Twitter around like privacy and so I don't get mm -hmm. notifications from people I don't follow and things like that just because I needed to especially when the book came out and I had to do and I am still doing public facing things I just mm -hmm. knew that I needed to kind of try and keep my head as clear as possible and also with that in mind I made a, a bit of a resolution not to read reviews not to seek out reviews until the dust has like settled around doing public facing stuff because I think perhaps I'm not, I think you'd have to be pretty resilient to, you know, read a really bad review and then, and then go and do a, a talk or something. That being said, that was me anxiously preparing for the worst. Everything I have seen, because I obviously have seen some reviews because some have been sent to me, um, have been so great. And I felt so lucky at the positive reception. Um, uh -huh, I'm glad. Yeah, I felt like so heartened by lots of like writers I really admire, giving great feedback, just 
so much great support actually and, mm-hmm. um a lot of the in-person events have entailed some of the most kind of precious feedback as well from people who yeah have just said that the book's been really helpful for them and mm-hmm. stuff so basically I've been really relieved um and really heartened by the reception I'm glad to hear that especially hearing you talk about how do you navigate publicity while thinking about mental health impacts listener if you have read the book or you're planning to read the book uh, Sophie does talk about mental health discourse as well. I really enjoyed reading your book. And I really laughed at the concluding chapter when you mentioned friends, because I think it was very apt, you know, throughout the book, you're talking about different types of relationships, whether that's biological kin or friendship or family ties. I, I felt that the friends discourse is ever perennial because I seem to be seeing the same kind of discourse about the Friends show, which is it either finds a new kind of generational watchers and they embrace it. They embrace it a lot. They like it. And then there are others who kind of look look at it retrospectively and say, well, maybe this wasn't the best kind of depiction of New York because it's very homogenous and very white. I want to ask you, why did you reference friends at the end of your book, which I call it the final case study, but maybe it's not kind of story where you're trying to tell (laughs) with it. Yeah, well, the final chapter, the conclusion is on friendship. Um, And that wasn't always the plan. I intended to have a chapter on friendship somewhere in the middle and then a chapter on death, because that comes at the (laughs) end and then a conclusion. But as I was getting towards the end of the writing process, I realized that the conclusion was always going to be about friendship. So I switched it up and yeah, now the final chapter is is not death and then a conclusion, but but is um, friendship. And I certainly didn't intend to write about the TV show Friends for as much of the chapter as I did. Um, Uh And yeah, as I <laughs> revealing myself to not be the biggest of planners during this interview, I again it was pretty organic. You know, it wasn't like mm-hmm. extremely thought through why I opened with friends. It was probably because it was around the time or during the writing process or planning process. It was when they did that reunion show on Sky or something, and I and I I just felt like I should watch it kind of for research purposes um I just had a feeling that maybe it would be relevant somehow and it really was and it was pretty bleak I quotes in the chapter somewhere in the book one of the producers or whatever saying that they had to end the show because all of the the characters had moved on to the next stage and they say it so explicitly to the next stage of their lives where um your friends aren't your family anymore because have a family of your own or something like that it was very prescriptive as if this notion of this certain intimate life path is um kind of preordained or or like some kind of scientific fact or something that just everyone goes through and also this like really explicit demotion of friendship so then when I watched that I was like okay I have to include this in the book um and and then I suppose 
maybe it was only going to be like a, a little extract or a little quote or something, but it made me reflect on my own relationship to the TV program. Um, <laughs> and most of the book isn't, you know, it's not particularly revealing or autobiographical, but that particular part, I do write in a bit more of a um, first person way or something and reflect yeah. on the influence that that TV show, which come to think of it's quite like um, spooky that TV shows can be so influential on on your yeah. years and, and your life part mm-hmm. in a way had on me. And it was a lot to do with the ideas that it promoted around friendship and intimacy mm-hmm. and domesticity. And it was extremely influential on, on me as a kind of young teen, I suppose, mm-hmm. on my ideas about the world, my ideas about relationships, as it was no doubt on so many people. And that this reunion show really revealed that because, I mean, or, or attempted to showcase that more over yeah. because they interviewed people all around the world. And that was a big part mm-hmm. of it, that they needed to interview people all around the world saying how impactful the Friends TV show had, had on their lives. Um and how impactful it was on their lives. A kind of quite common thread of those interviews, now I think about it, was people sharing how they were lacking in in friendship, lacking in um, intimacy in their real lives and how much of a comfort friends the TV show had been. So, yeah, it just became like this quite fertile ground and maybe also, again, just something that I found like enjoyable to consider. Yeah. Um, I thought it might fall a bit flat but thankfully it's it's been okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't watch the, I don't know, what do we call it? Was it a reunion you Something said? Something like that. I wouldn't recommend it. Was... it. It's not very good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't even playing their roles. They were just talking about the, the phenomenon that, that is Friends. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was going to be an, an episode, in which case it could uh-huh. be quite fun to watch or something. But no, it's uh-huh. this really long reunion of the actors and it's just very, very dragged out and kind of like... You make it sound so somber. <laughs> well, it is. It's quite It's quite depressing. Like, yeah, maybe I would recommend it out of interest or something, but it's not like yeah. fun to watch. It's quite huh. surreal. And right. yeah, kind of like a post-mortem type. So you were saying that the conclusion... That the first iteration, the conclusion was about death, and it sounds like there was a death to, to like the the enjoyment or the, even the nostalgia of, of watching Friends. Um, I didn't really watch Friends. I think my older siblings watched it, but was it a big cultural phenomenon in in the UK as well? Massive, massive. Oh, yeah. okay. I I know people consider it a very American show, but have you heard of the show Living Single? Never. Oh, okay. So it it's produced by Queen Latifah. And I think I think it was on actually I don't think. I know it was on before Friends and people have called Friends a kind of rip-off version of Living Single. And it was on all black cast and it was the same um it was the same setup as Friends. They're all friends and the men live next door. The women were roommates and then some people became intimate. So it was the same. The same. Hmm. It had a shorter lifespan yeah. than Friends, and it was my understanding in the book. He said it was like ten seasons. Was it? Yeah. Do you so it's so it? interesting it's to hear. Yeah. Huh? What was it? Living single. Do you recommend? It? <laughs> yes, living single. I completely recommend. I watched it during the the beginning of the pandemic because I I watched it as a kid, 
but I didn't watch it in its entirety. And then that's when I went down a rabbit hole, finding the kind of old news about how France kind of took over the the campaigning and then the publicity of Living Single. I think I, so. I I'm a bit ignorant when it comes to streaming services in the UK and Europe. Um, I think we watch it on Hulu. Is that is that a thing in the UK? I think you can't. Okay, but I'm sure there's a way. I'll find. Okay, <laughs> yeah, please watch it. And I should be really interested in 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 your observations of how friendships there, because it's a very black depiction of life in New York. It's kind of like you know, friends is in New York. This is in New York. Yeah. It's really fun to listen to how people respond to friends because when I was a TA in Canada, a lot of the Canadian students love friends. Mm-hmm. Like they thought that was the ultimate depiction of American life. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a very, I mean, I, get, I don't know what to say. It's, I don't know. It, maybe it's like a romantic version of particular life, but I'm not, I'm not certain that it encapsulates the worldview that people think it projects. Yeah. So, Sophie, I'm curious. I know maybe this is too soon a question, but I'm curious to know if you're working on any big writing projects and and that you can include, too, if you're able to, your journalistic pieces that we might be expecting. Mm. So, yeah, I don't have anything concrete to share, but over the next few years, I'm going to go on a bit of a, I suppose, in a way, a career rather than change transition um and i am hoping to retrain as a psychoanalyst and kind of transition my writing more um towards that sphere and i hope but far too soon to say but i hope fiction um so yeah complete kind of new chapter no pun intended you know, I, I I love writing journalism. I love writing nonfiction, but I've had a kind of realization, I think, recently that I've not been writing fiction because uh, I've been too like maybe more intimidated by it, and actually that it's what I want to be doing. I I really would love to write a novel, um, and I'm kind of at the very most beginning stages of that. Oh, that's exciting. Congratulations. It's always nice to hear about writing projects and kind of new directions, new ideas. And I also think it was interesting that you mentioned psychoanalysis as a as a an extension of the, the new chapter. I felt like I remember your citations of psychoanalysis. Is that yeah, yeah. So it's like I feel like I'm learning a lot about of how you approach the book and kind of your thinking through as the book is living in its its um textual world, I suppose. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It kind of it doesn't yeah, maybe sound intuitive, but it, it somehow is like the natural next step. I think I've spent a lot of my writing career looking outwards. I just feel very drawn to look inwards right now, not, yeah. not just myself, but into, inwards to the psyche. And I think <laughs> it is an incredibly important element of politics that is often mm-hmm. forgotten. And yeah, obviously it's possible to over-focus on, on the psyche, but I think it's equally really important not to neglect 
the impact of yeah. our internal worlds, yeah. symbiotic impact of our internal worlds and the systems mm-hmm. we live in. Sophie, thank you so much for your time and your generosity for for accepting the invitation to talk on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And I hope that whenever you have another book, whenever that be, let, let this be an open invitation for you to come back so that we can talk about either your um, fiction book or whatever else you have in the in the pipeline. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anna. It's been really, really nice. Take care. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.